I'm going to ask you to stand with me now and turn in the Word of God to Psalm 46. Whether you're here or whether you're watching us on live stream here, I want you to go ahead and stand because God's Word is holy. And it is inspired. And it is infallible. And He would speak to you this morning as the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Psalm 46. Here is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now in the summer of 1527, the bubonic plague or the black plague swept through Germany. And by August, it finally reached uh, Wittenberg, the home of Martin Luther, where he pastored and taught in the local university. And things got so bad that the prince ordered Luther to leave the city with his family. And part of the concern was that his wife, Katie Van Duren, was pregnant. And it was a natural concern for her health. But here's the thing. Instead of leaving, Luther stayed and he opened up his house as a hostel for the sick. And what he considered, what he encountered during this season of the plague was truly awful. The plague was virulent. It spread rapidly. It consisted of fevers and what are called weeping boils. The flesh opened up and rotted and it killed with tremendous efficiency. And during this time, Luther nearly lost his son, and his own health was greatly compromised. And so you might not be surprised, then, that it was during this season of 1527, under the plague, that Luther began to fall in love with Psalm 46. In fact, we're told that as Luther encountered the miseries and the sufferings, and as he Daily, on a daily basis, dealt with the havoc being wreaked upon the city as a whole, that we are told that he turned to his good friend, Philip Melanchthon, a leading Lutheran theologian, and he would say to Philip, 
Come, Philip. Let's go sing Psalm 46. The psalmist that Luther must have laid hold of as he sang this psalm, I think we can say safely is summarized in that great hymn which he penned at this time called The Mighty Fortress of Our God. And I think we can extract from that what Luther was laying hold of as he sang this psalm as it opens, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Our God has willed to triumph through us. That, in a nutshell, is a fairly good summation of the substance of this psalm because it grasps hold of its twin pillars. One, which is the proclamation of God with all of the resources and power and grace with his church. And second pillar, the response of faith, which is confidence. You see, Psalm 46 is a, is a psalm of trust. Psalm 46 calls the people of God to confidence before calamity. And you can see that it's a confidence in God and a well-founded confidence through the series of terms and titles that are used here to describe not God in the abstract, but God for us, God for his church, God for the believer, God for you. And that God who is for us is a God who inspires the greatest confidence and faith in his people. And that's what we want to think about today. And there are two scenes or images in this psalm that are unfolded, which represent what I think we could say is the gamut of calamities that face the church in every age. Natural disasters, if you will, and on the other, spiritual conflict. And it's in the face of both of those that Psalm 46 calls you as the believer to the most robust kind of confidence and faith and trust in God. So what we're going to do is take apart these two images or scenes of calamity and show how in both God discloses himself unto you as your strength and how you're to respond with holy confidence. So we'll take this psalm apart in, in two ways. Cosmic distress and enemy attack. Cosmic distress and enemy attack. And we take up, first of all, cosmic distress. And what I want to do is sort of leapfrog here. Right over verse 1 with its soaring claims and jump right into the nastiness of Psalm 46, verse 2, where we read, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip, into the heart of the sea, and you can read on in the verse 3 about the rest of the natural calamity. Its waters formed a foam, and the mountains quake at its swelling pride. We have a series of verbs here in the Hebrew which uh, recount for us the peril of the calamity which is natural in nature. And the first is earth change. And I, and I, I think it's important that we grasp hold of the word earth here. Because it's not speaking of Palestinian calamity, or Canaanite calamity, or even Mediterranean calamity. It is thinking about a kind of calamity 
that pervades the earth, and therefore, because of its pervasiveness, is a problem for everyone. That's the thing you want to lay hold of here as you hear this word earth that's thinking of the world with its population is under the same burden of stress. Why? Because we read here, the mountains are tottering. And that verb totter there has the suggestion of losing all motor control. The inability of someone to hold themselves up under their own strength and their knees melt like wax beneath them and they just slide away. And here it's of the mountains. And the problem for that is in ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking, the mountains were the massive pillars which held the earth up and prevented and pushed back the sea from consuming the earth. So for the mountains to fall into the sea meant equal and enormous calamity for the entire world. And as you begin to think about it in the biblical context, you realize why. Because of the third day of creation. Remember Genesis 1 talks about this. That uh, on the third day of creation, God caused the dry land and the mountains to appear. He formed it, as we just sung in Psalm 95, with his bare hands. The Lord speaks of this in Job 38 as he quizzes Job. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I enclosed the sea with its doors, when it was bursting forth? When I placed boundaries on it and set bolts for its doors, and I said, you go no further. You proud waves, stop. You see, and what's the backdrop of that is the very context of the creation week, because it's spelled out in Genesis 1-2. There was a threefold problem. The earth was formless and void, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and it was not until day three that this watery mass, which covered the entire surface of the earth, was pushed back into its place and bolted with a door. So when you hear about, in Psalm 46, mountains slipping into the sea, you are hearing about nothing less than the reversal of the entire created order. And as you think about that, you begin to think about the works of God are under attack. The creation is groaning. The creation is in revolt. The seas are raging. Creation is being reversed. And everyone is equally in harm. And so verse 3 goes on to unfold this it speaks of the rage of the seas when it talks about its roaring and foaming. It's a thunderous, ear-piercing sound. The foam uh, represents the violence of the waves churning up the foam as it creates these powerful whirlpool-like actions. Pride, that's literally a translation here of verse 3. It says that the mountains quake at swelling pride, but it's an imagery of, of vaunting itself, the seas as if 
uh, in hostile takeover mode are so powerful that they feel like they can dominate the creation. They can dominate the mountains. They can dominate the earth. It is diabolical. And so then, the mountains are shaking in their boots. That's the problem. Not just a plague. Not COVID-19. Not a whirlwind. Not a storm. Not a tornado. Not an earthquake. But nothing less than the reversal of the divinely appointed created order. Now, it's in that context that we begin to see confidence, okay? I told you we need to lay hold of the image so that we begin to see the response of the people of God, and you can see it very plainly here in the text, in the initial words of verse 2, Therefore, we will not fear thou. See that? This is the response of the people of God to universal calamity and the reversal of the created order. We will not fear, though. We will not be in distress, though. And the though is obvious. The mountains are slipping into the heart of the sea. The sea waters are foaming. The mountains are quaking. We have cosmic calamity, and yet the psalmist gives us the boldest expression of faith possible. I won't cry. I'm not going to lose heart. My peace will not be stolen and replaced with anxiety. I will not turn on God. We will not fear. And when you hear that, it sounds astonishing. You should ask yourself why. It's one thing to thump your chest and to talk boldly when your life's in order and everything seems fine. It's quite another thing when you're standing before nothing less than the upheaval of the world. That's time to start panicking, right? Why isn't it? Well, the entry point of that confidence expressed in verse 1 now. This is the... Memory verse you learned on your mama's knee. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And the thing that I keep emphasizing, I've repeated it already a bunch of times, is that this verse is speaking not about God in the abstract, but God as he is to us. That's literally how the Hebrew reads. God to us is refuge, strength, and help. In other words, the accent is upon what the Lord is for his church. And the fact that this forms the basis of the psalmist's bold confidence in verse 2 is indicated by the very first word in verse 2, right? Therefore. We love to repeat the Martin Lloyd-Jones rule. Whenever you see a therefore, stop and ask what the therefore is there. Isn't that right? Why won't I fear? Well, the reason is because my faith is rooted in this God. And so we need to think about this God. What is he to you? And the very first thing that faith's confidence lays hold of before calamity and natural disaster is God is a refuge. God is to us refuge, a place of shelter, somewhere where you flee from danger. It is a place of safety. It is about protection. Think of that, though. In view of the mountains falling into the sea, where is your refuge? 
can't even run to the hills. God is a refuge. Though creation is unruly and would seek to reverse divine order, the psalmist says, don't be afraid. God is a refuge. Second of all, he says, God is strength. Strength. And the idea here is all adequate force necessary to get the job done. It's about horsepower, right? Horsepower. It's a V8. It's got all the horsepower you need. This is saying that God has more strength than the virulent forces of nature which are seeking to rebel against the ordinance of God and consume the earth. That means because God is strength, you can stand straight and tall and look the adversity in your life straight in the eye. Not in yourself, but by the Lord. The last one, I think, is maybe the most gripping description of God for us. A very present help in trouble. Helps good. Helps good because it means that uh, whatever is needed is provided. And the help uh, doesn't come in the sunshiny days or bright starry nights. The help comes in the midst of what? It says trouble. The most intense kind of distress. But you know what really is the heart of this statement? God is found. Verb's passive. So it's not saying that God is coming to look for you. The verb is saying that when you seek God in the midst of your situations of life distress and calamity, when you go seeking the Lord with faith, He's there. He is to be found. He's locatable. This speaks of the exercise of faith. Somebody who in the midst of their sufferings knows that they're far greater than they can sustain themselves. And they go on a quest. And the psalmist says, this isn't a quest to the ends of the earth. As fast and as often as you exercise faith in Christ and seek the Lord as a refuge and strength, he's found. That's confidence. The reason why the psalmist can say here, without any hint of arrogance or imagery of thumping away at the chest and boastful confidence in himself, the reason he can say, I won't fear, is because when he knows God is to him, He's help, real help, that can be found in access the moment faith cries out. There's something else here that is a pillar in support for the believer's confidence in seasons of natural calamity. And it's found in verses uh, 4 and 5, where you read there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy uh, dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. And what I want us to notice here, as I've already said, we've had the image or the scene depicted of calamity, and now we have another scene or image or picture here presented side by side, but with this addition that now this portion of the psalm or this image of the psalm is being presented to you this morning by way of counterproposal. Remember, there is the, the, the one problem 
of the earth slipping into the sea. And now the psalmist says, I want you to consider the place of the believer. It is the city of God. Being refreshed with what? Water. You see, what ties these scenes together is the theme of water. On the one hand, you have the image of the seas in rebellion and revolt consuming the earth. And on the other, you have the theme of water now in the form of this river with its streams. And what the psalmist is showing us is the rest of the saints. The rest, not all of the saints, but the rest and the peace and the hope and the consolation of the believer. And it's because they're in that center, that city. And they are being strengthened with these streams. I told you before, if you want a good commentary on the psalm, go read Dead Old Guys. Matthew Henry. This must be understood spiritually. The covenant of grace is the river, the promises of which are the streams or the spirit of grace the comforts of which are the streams that make glad the city of God. And then he says, it's God's word and ordinances. They are the streams and rivers which God makes his saints glad, glad with on cloudy days. See, what he's saying here is the river streams are the means of grace. They are Christ to you. See that? And, and the way we can be sure of that is the poetic imagery that's found here in verses 4 and 5. Because we are told about these most high, holy dwelling places. Well, guess what? Dwelling places is tabernacles. And as we've been studying recently in our Old Testament studies in, in worship, tabernacle is the place that God ordained and appointed for him to be and his ministry to be. You see, the stream is filling through the city of God, and it is refreshing the tabernacles, the place of worship. And then in verse 5, we see the imagery of God in her midst. We've already seen that the tabernacle is Christ. It's all about him, isn't it? John 1.14, we are told that we beheld him, and he tabernacled among us. So as the psalmist presents this very bucolic and pastoral image of, of these river streams refreshing the city of God, he's saying this is all about Christ and the means. I want you to notice the blessing and the real help that it is. You begin to see that at the end of verse 5. It's real help. God will help. Remember verse 1 already talks about it that he is a very present help in trouble, but we need to connect that to something tangible. And one way we know God is help is when I come to this place, burdened with all of my concerns, one thing that I can be sure of is God in Christ has come to refresh me with the means. And it says, make firm. And you know what's so great about that word? Verse 5, may God is in the midst of she won't be moved. It's a same verb. That's in verse 2 to speak of the mountains tottering and slipping. And here it has a negation in front of it that says that the church won't be moved. But the mountains are being consumed by the fury of the waves. The church of Jesus Christ before calamity will not be 
moved. That is the power of the means. And we like to joke around here about church being four walls in a sermon. But I'll take these means any day of the week over all of the idolatry which permeates the church of Jesus Christ as replacement for the simplicity of what Christ has appointed, the word and the sacrament, because of its power, it makes Earth. It's timely. Notice here, we're told at dawn, will God help her? And no matter how you take that imagery, there's a couple of things that seem to me to be embedded in it. First of all, it's at dawn. It's timely. It's exactly when I need it. It's after the long night characterized over the battle of the soul here. In the morning, God has come to help. But it also speaks of regularity because that is the point of the dawn. It is something that comes like clockwork. It is the regularity of help that's also emphasized here. And so this is what we do. We live our entire life around the Lord's Day. We begin every single week with Christ and his word and his church on the Christian Sabbath. Everything that we do is planned around this one and six calendar because the reality is we're too weak to live any other way. The help of the Lord at dawn is the help of Christ and his church in the Lord's day. We cannot afford to miss meeting with Christ on the Lord's day because we're not strong enough for our problem. And so as we come to the worship of the Lord, we find confidence for faith as God in the morning meets us with his grace. And notice it's finally refreshing. It makes glad. That's the effect of the means. They make glad. They invigorate. And they refresh the soul. And they inject new energy into faith. This is the help of the believer. This is the confidence of the believer before calamity is that Jesus Christ makes his means refreshing for the soul. The thing is, we are not the ones that bring that energizing force to the sacrament or to the word. It's all a work of grace. It's God by his spirit taking his word and his promises and his gospel orientation, his Christ-centeredness, and bringing it to, to home to your soul in a powerful and sometimes an even imperceptible way. People say, Pastor, I'm not growing in my faith. And I said, yes, you are. You just don't see it. Because we take small steps. But they're real steps because they're not ours. They are what God in Christ is working in you. And it's by grace. People of God, our solace in standing before a cosmic upheaval is Jesus Christ. And I think you can agree with me this morning. If the most extreme image of natural calamity is being presented as the occasion for faith to be exercised, certainly it includes underneath and within it every lesser form of trouble, right? Isn't that true? It's not as if Psalm 46 is saying, hey, we've got a fail-safe plan. If everything goes down, you've read about these uh, 
bunkers that the rich people are buying. If everything goes bad in society, we'll, we'll at least we can fly you on a helicopter to some cornfield in Kansas, and you'll go 100 feet underground, and you'll live blissfully with fake light for 10 years. So what? I'd rather die. That's not what Psalm 46 is saying. This isn't the fail-safe emergency plan. In all of our situations of difficulty, the plan is to run straight to Christ. He has faced confidence. I love the fact that Jesus picks up the consolation that is bound up with this firm foundation of faith strength. God is in our midst. Jesus picks it up right before he ascends into heaven and says, and with you always even into the end of the age. Yes, his uh, human body is not here present on earth, but as the Catechism says, according to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. That's why we don't turn to idols. I'm sure that you've watched with me. I'm sure you've been struck with me over the past several months now, watching the pandemic unfold in the world around us, just how false and useless and vain the idols of this age are. Social planning, it didn't work. Technology, it didn't work. Medicines, they don't work. Hospitals, they don't work. The opinion of doctors, useless. It changes every five minutes. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You can check this like a series of boxes off over and over again. And the one thing that God in his providence is doing is exposing the emptiness of the idols of our age. And it's not that we delight in suffering. The point is to show that as we face the mountains slipping into the sea in our own experiences, we see the world around us. We're to be exhorted to one thing, to run to Christ. To find out what our hope is, that the foundation of faith's confidence is, is not that there's a really smart, elite group of thinkers with white laboratory coats on in some sequestered away place on the verge of some great discovery. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in God who is this refuge, who is strength, who is a very present help in our time of need, who is the very one who comes and ministers Christ to you this morning at this table. Confidence before calamity. Notice a second. Enemy attack. Verse 6. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Here's your second image or scene or picture of difficulty. This time it looks on the surface of it to be geopolitical and military. You see nations and kingdom, which points to states, if you will. You see the military aspect of it here in verse 6 in the words of uproar and tottering. You see the military imaging in verse 8 and 9. And so it does indeed look like um, nations attacking the church. It looks political. It looks military. 
we hear the clash of war and violence here. But then we remember that this can't be about the nations physically taking up swords against us because the dominant image prior to this is the city of God. This is about spiritual warfare. And we're invited to think this way. If you go all the way back to the entry point of the Psalter in Psalm 2, where it talks about the nations in an uproar. We have linkage here with vocabulary. The kings of the earth taking their stand, rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, and saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their bonds. Nations and revolt is imagery of spiritual warfare and conflict. And so once again, Matthew Henry nails it. He says, we may apply this to our spiritual enemies. And so once again, what's happening is that we are being presented with a picture of difficulty, this one being spiritual conflict, and now God is showing us how to respond. And I want you to look at verse 8. We know that he is leading us to know how to respond with confidence because of verse 8a. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Those are back-to-back commands. Come, stand on this mountaintop and behold, observe what's going on below you. And the thing that our eyes are to be fixed upon are the works of the Lord. And so what the psalmist does here is he takes off in a series divine works in the midst of this picture of the storm of spiritual conflict. And he does it all for the purpose of instilling faith in your heart. I want you to notice the very first image that he uses here to talk about the works of the Lord. And it's located in verse 6. And you have the clamor of the nations in revolt. They're making an uproar that kingdoms are tottering. And notice what it says. He raised his voice and the earth melts. God doesn't even lift a finger. He just speaks a word. And the nations with all of their arrogance and rebellion melt like hot wax. He vaporizes the forces of darkness with a word of command. Verse 8, he brings desolations. That means horrible and terrible things. And you see the exposition of that in verse 9. He crushes military revolt. He makes wars to cease in the work. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. He brings an end to the conflict. He destroys militaries. He breaks the bow. The word there means smash. He cuts the spear. It means shatter. He burns the chariot with fire meaning he reduces their capability to nothing but ashes. That, the psalmist says to you this morning, come and stand on this mountaintop and observe the works of the Lord. He has a message for two kinds of people. He has a message for the unbeliever, and he has a message for the believer. The message for the unbeliever is in verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. It's a command. God is saying to the opposition to stop. I remember seeing this for years, growing up in the Reformed Church, be still and know that I am God. 
thinking about what a wonderful verse of consolation that would be. Not for me, it's for the unbeliever. It's a rebuke of the rebellion. To say, don't dishonor the Lord. He is the exalted king. As it says here, his name will not be trampled underfoot. And that's exactly what the spiritual opposition thinks. That somehow Jesus Christ and his church is going to be defeated. Somehow the opposition thinks that the city of God is going to get flooded. And all we'll see is bodies lying on the beach. God says emphatically no to the forces of darkness. You will be defeated because nothing less than the glory of my name is at stake. Faith is confident before spiritual conflict because we know of the authority and the power of Christ to defeat his enemies. But there's something for you here this morning, uh, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's strength. I want you to notice as you look down at your Bible that verse 7 and verse 11 say exactly the same thing. And what they do is present two different titles for the Lord, for faith, to take a firm stand on. The Lord of hosts with us, the God of Jacob, is our stronghold. The Lord of hosts with us. You know what that means? The Lord of Armies. Host is a military term. In its verbal form, it means to engage in battle. It's noun form, it means a military unit, and it describes Jesus Christ here as a warrior. He is the battlefield general leading his military fighting units in conquest. The Lord of Hosts is military. It, it, it uh, presents Christ as the sovereign commander of the battlefield. And so basically it's saying, when you hear the spiritual sabers rattling, you got one thing to do, which is to pick up your sword and stand firm right behind the Lord of hosts, the great warrior king. And then for the consolation of the church, that this will be for their good and not for their harm, is that next title, God of Jacob is our end. Because when you think of God of Jacob, you remember what? You remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was passed on to Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his people Israel. This is about promise. This is about God who makes covenant. This is about God who makes promises. This is about God who keeps his word. What does he say he will be? Refuge, security, protection, help. What the church clings to then before calamity is not, not its anxiety, but to Christ, Lord of hosts, God of Jacob, a refuge. So we've seen now two foundations for confidence and two radically indifferent but very terrifying scenarios being overcome by nature or being overcome by spiritual enemies. And in both cases, the Lord is the answer. 
is held. And so the application is fairly simple and straightforward this morning. Seek strength and protection in the Lord. John Calvin speaks of how the Lord knows that we're prone to weakness and indifference and coldness of heart. So he says, for that reason, he uses these very vivid and striking images about God in Psalm 46. Even images that are very vivid and powerful about nature itself, mountains slipping into the sea, so that we won't be desensitized to the real problem of our trouble. And on the other hand, we won't slip into anxiety and be subdued to fear, but because we know who God is under these powerful metaphors and images, we know we have something which sustains us, and that is the Lord. And so what we do is we take whatever size of faith we have. And I'll be the first to admit, often mine's just about the size of a mustard seed. It's okay, you can take whatever little bit of faith you have, and you can run to these promises, and you can assure yourself that it'll matter because of what verse 1 says. A very present help to be found. The promise of the word of God is that as, as often as or whenever you take faith to seek Christ, to be found. So this morning, we know that we have a real refuge because Jesus shed his blood to make peace for us with God. He won't shut the door. He won't leave us in the cold. We won't be ravaged. I don't think we can just end with comfort. I don't think we can just end with comfort. Particularly in view of the second scene and image, which unfolds in Psalm 46, and with the terms and titles applied to God, nothing less than the Lord of hosts leading his church in battle against his spiritual enemies. Second of all, this psalm and its confidence is a call to the church militant. The Helvetic Confession speaks of this in chapter 17 when it speaks of the true church militant. It says it still wages war on earth, fights against the flesh, the world, the prince, the devil, sin, and even death itself. Church militant. The great Dutch theologian, Louis Burkhoff, describes it like this. He says, the church of the present dispensation is a militant church called to actually engage in holy warfare. She is duty-bound to carry on incessant warfare against the hostile world in every form which it reveals itself. And he goes on to say this, and I think this is very important. The church may not spend all her time in prayer and meditation, however necessary and important these may be, she must be engaged with all of her might in the battles of the Lord. Church Moses. Engaged in holy warfare against the devil, the world, and the flesh, incessant warfare against the hostile world, engaged with all of her might. The church does not live in a prayer closet or on a spiritual retreat, singing about the sweet by and by. 
the Lord of hosts with us in the face of real opposition says that we are called as the church to come under the banner of Christ and stand for it. And I'm deeply concerned that we are losing the concept and the belief of the church militant today. I am deeply concerned that as I look out in the broader church that we have lost the concept of the church militant today. And I don't know whether that's out of a sense of battle fatigue due to the early 20th century wars with liberalism, a fear of appearing divisive, an overemphasis on being nice, or a lack of intellectual, moral, or doctoral conviction. I'm not sure what it is, and I won't be responsible for assigning the cause and reason. But I do see this. The concept of the church militant seems to be evaporating. It's as if it's being deleted from the hard drives. And the fact of the matter is, because God is to us the Lord of hosts, that means that we are all brought under the banner of the warrior king, Jesus Christ. That means we have a duty to stand for. We have the magistrate telling us that even if we can gather and assemble as God's people, we can't worship in ways that he doesn't approve, even though Jesus Christ appointed the worship of the church. We have false doctrine and practice infiltrating the church at every hand as spiritual wolves disguise themselves and demand the ethics and the agenda of contemporary culture be baptized in Christ's name, become mandates for the church. So we are under assault. Instead of being the church militant, we're in an underground bunker. Psalm 46 does not permit that response because it says we are called to confidence before calamity, whether it's natural or spiritual. And so we are not free to permit the magistrate to take the worship of Christ into his hands and dictate to us about how we worship, but we are not free to let spiritual wolves trample like pigs through the church and spread false doctrine. The Lord of hosts means we are called to stand with Jesus Christ, to confess the truth and not alter our worship, to expose what is false, to promote what is true. And so this morning... We don't just enjoy the sweet consolation of a refuge Lord. We also at the same time remember that he's called us to make a stand with him and for him. He's the one who is our redeemer and Lord. And so this morning, people of God, let's not fix our eyes on the calamities which are around us, but let's fix our eyes on this Lord Jesus Christ. Refuge, strength, help, Lord of hosts, God of Jacob. Father, we thank you for the solace and consolation and even stirring and powerful exhortation of an ancient song. We discern this morning, it has very relevant application. It reminds us of what your word is. It's true. It is forever settled in heaven with no expiration date whatsoever. 
So we are glad to be your sheep this morning who have been called to wander in these beautiful green pastures in order that our soul may be filled and nourished with your word and truth. Take this word by the power of your spirit and sink it deep within our hearts that it may make us firm and bold in faith our own, that which comes from you as a gift. And that as we enjoy this faith, Lord, help us to rejoice in your mercies and stand firm under Christ, exalting his name, that it may be unto your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 